This is Guns and Butter. So here's the thing. On a little bit before October 5th, Dick Cheney, the vice president, met with a bunch of Republican senators and said, you know, I don't like the fact that this Patriot Act is taking so long to go through Congress. He said, it's going too slowly. I want it passed. Let's try to get it through by October 5th. This is October 5th, 2001. So that's Cheney's deadline. Well, guess what? It wasn't passed by October 5th, and the two guys most responsible for holding it up were Daschle and Leahy. So then guess what? Somewhere between October 6th, the day after that deadline, and October 9th, somewhere within those three days, two anthrax letters are sent to, guess who? Daschle and Leahy. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Graham McQueen. Today's show, The War on Terror, Targeting Elected Officials. Graham McQueen taught in the Religious Studies Department of McMaster University in Ontario for 30 years. In 1989, he became founding director of the Center for Peace Studies at McMaster and oversaw the development of peace-building projects in Sri Lanka, Gaza, Croatia, and Afghanistan. He is a co-editor of the Journal of 9-11 Studies, a member of the 9-11 Consensus Panel, and was on the organizing committee of the 2011 Toronto hearings on 9-11. He is the author of The 2001 Anthrax Deception, The Case for a Domestic Conspiracy. Today we discuss the intimidation of elected representatives in both the United States and Canada as a core feature of the War on Terror. Graham McQueen, welcome. Thank you. Uh, It's great to be here, Bonnie. How would you describe the initial reactions of the United States Congress to explosions in the Twin Towers on September 11th? Well, as far as I know, uh, members of Congress specifically didn't talk about explosions in the towers, although in my opinion, that's what brought them down. But certainly, members of Congress reacted to the destruction of the towers and to the fact that um, someone rushed into their uh, rooms where they were watching all this stuff unfold on TV and said, you've got to evacuate the Capitol. You've got to evacuate the whole building because it looks like there's a plane headed our way. And uh, according to Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle, that was the first time in history that the entire Capitol had been evacuated in that way. And there didn't seem to have been any protocol as to how to do it. He says it was, quote, total chaos with, you know, senators and House members scattering in all directions in fear. So that's why this was a major act of terror or, if you like, deliberate intimidation of Congress. Imagine them having to flee the building in which they they meet. It's symbolic of Uh, the representatives of the United States population meeting together to deliberate and make laws. So, you know, regardless of whether it was explosions or something else that destroyed the towers, and we could talk about that later, this um, 9-11 incident certainly caused intimidation of Congress. 
What is a pattern that is common in societies experiencing danger? Well, one of the patterns that I'm drawing attention to these days, and I'm certainly not the inventor of this idea, it's been around for a long while, I use the acronym TUR TUR to um, symbolize threat, unity, and response, or as sometimes I say reaction, but let's say response. Threat, unity, and response. So in other words, some, some threat appears on the scene, uh, the group or society in question um, is intimidated, they're frightened, and they therefore draw together. That's what unity is about. Uh, they pull together like a herd threatened by a predator. And indeed, we see this in communities of non-humans, not just humans. They draw together, and there are a lot of implications there. Uh, civil liberties often go out the window. Dissent is often repressed. And in fact, this unity is usually a hierarchical unity, not an egalitarian unity, uh, hard to distinguish from obedience. So normally, the executive branch of the government or the military, whoever at that point is claiming to be the leader, uh, gets to do what they want, and everyone else huddles behind them, grateful for their protection, grateful to have security. That's what I mean by unity. And then response can be of various kinds, but I'm especially interested in two kinds. One is the uh, repression of dissent, which I just talked about. Oh, let's pass a new law, making it more difficult for people to maintain their traditional civil liberties. Uh, let's give more power to intelligence agencies and police and the executive branch. That would be a response that concentrates on the domestic scene, the uh, inside of a society. The other kind of response is external or international, and that's when the society says, somebody did this to us, some foreign agency or power or entity. So now having drawn together as, as a herd, you know, and we're now strong and united, we we will hurl ourselves at this external enemy, and that's usually what we mean by war. That's an act of aggression, that's armed force usually, which we then direct toward the person that we think is the enemy, or that we imagine as the enemy, whether they are or aren't. So in other words, threat comes first, then a powerful unity, a herd sense, which then leads to a twofold response, both domestic and international. That's the pattern I'm interested in right now. And I'm especially interested in when it's done to the elected representatives of people, Congress, Parliament, that sort of thing. You have written that there is a pattern common enough in war and found in the war on terror, threat, followed by unity, followed by reaction, which has an internal and external dimension, which you've just mentioned, the sacrificing of civil liberties and then outwardly attacking enemies. Could right. you talk, yeah, could you talk about unity, particularly with regard to the United States Congress on September 11th, 2001? What signs were there immediately that Congress was, both sides of Congress, were drawing together in an act of unity. Right. Well, after they fled in chaos and confusion from the Capitol and went in various directions, many members of Congress gathered later in the day on the steps of the Capitol outside, and there was a podium set up and speeches were made. And the typical, you know, the theme was, as 
political uh, elected leaders usually say on these events, we will not be intimidated. We will stand up to this threat. We will never allow ourselves, etc., etc. And included in that were lots of statements of unity. We will uh, gather together regardless of our typical disagreements, regardless of what party, regardless of whether we're Senate or House of Representatives, we will gather together under the President of the United States. So that's the statements of unity. And then when they had finished making these statements, um, and by the way, one of the speakers was Senator Tom Daschle, who was Senate Majority Leader. He's, he's one of the few people who could have uh, thrown a monkey wrench into the works of the Bush administration because the Democrats actually had a majority in Senate, and he could have blocked both the resolution on the use of force, which would allow the U.S. to do warlike things, and he could have also blocked the internal uh, act, the so-called Patriot Act, coming up, at least in theory. He could have given them a lot of trouble. But there he is. He's convinced the whole 9-11 story was genuine. He's hoodwinked like most everyone else. He's standing at the podium. He's been won over. He wants to unite uh, under the president. And in fact, Daschle says he had never experienced such a powerful sense of unity in his life as he did on 9-11. We were one big family, he said. Well, that's a classic statement of unity. And then after he's finished his speech and all the speeches are finished, they're starting to drift away. And clearly some people feel that's not enough. We need some ritual affirmation of unity. And so somehow or other in the crowd, still on the steps, um, the singing begins. God bless America, our home, sweet home. So I don't, I don't have any, any problem with the fact that they're singing it. But it's remarkable to watch because we have, we have a record of this on video. And this is such interesting, important historical footage. Um, in scattered little groups, they begin singing it, and on they go, and they all know the words, and they all sing it, and then they hug each other and everything else. And this, again, I don't want to make fun of them. This is what human groups do under threat. Um, they're clearly moved. They're clearly feeling unity as a family. But what I want to point out to people is that although this is very natural, there's nothing wrong with it inherently, what you're in at that point is you're in an emotional emotional state and the critical part of your brain isn't necessarily working really well. And in fact, if people begin to dissent and begin using their brain, begin asking questions, who the heck did this? What do you mean Al-Qaeda? That's usually not looked upon very favorably. And so you are allowing your own brain, or if you prefer your mind, to be... Um, disabled, if you like, to be put on hold. And that's really dangerous because if, if the event, if the whole threat is a fake in some way, if it's a false flag operation, for example, where you know, a crime has indeed been committed, but not by the, the perpetrator you're being told, but by someone else, you're in a very vulnerable position. You're singing, you're hugging, you're ready to throw your armed forces against the enemy, but it's the wrong enemy. And you're willing to give up your civil liberties, but it's for the wrong reason, and so on. So this is a moment of tremendous vulnerability for a population at large, but also for the elected representatives of the people. Well, with regard to the uh, subject of unity, I noticed that you have posted a few photographs of uh, Dashiell actually hugging President Bush. 
That's correct. Um, that was a few days after 9-11. I believe it was after a big uh, formal church service. And, uh, you know, photographers were snapping pictures, of course, of this because Bush and Daschle were opponents and they really had major ideological differences. Daschle is frank about this in his autobiography. And, um, you know, he was extremely critical of the way the Bush administration had come into power and begun to immediately thumb its nose at international law, for example. And yet here's Daschle. Um, you know, he's caught up in the moment. He wants to, he wants to be a good patriot. He wants to be a good leader. He wants to do what's right. He believes the 9-11 official narrative. So there he is hugging his opponent, Mr. Bush. And I think I said somewhere or other, this is one of the most dangerous hugs in modern times, uh, because really that meant what, what that symbolizes to me is the Tom Daschle, who I respect, but who proposed the resolution on the use, use of force and, and, and Congress passed it almost unanimously on September 14th. And that gave cover to the Bush administration in its aggression against Afghanistan and even to some extent for its aggression against Iraq. Um, don't forget that the U.S. Constitution gives the power to declare war to Congress, not to the president, not to the executive branch. And even though presidents seldom seek an official declaration of war anymore, they like to have some degree of cover, some kind of sign from Congress that they're enabled to do this. And that's what they got on September 14th. So the hug with, you know, Daschle partly represents his role in that, but it also represents the fact that he was willing to support this Patriot Bill, um, the Patriot Act, which was, you know, introduced to Congress very rapidly after 9-11. And, you know, there's a whole other story there, which we'll maybe get into, because Daschle did put up a little bit of a fuss and uh, and was taken care of, we may say. But but that hug, you know, when you see these hugs, that represents a very dangerous unity and a very vulnerable population. I'm speaking with researcher and author Dr. Graham McQueen. Today's show, The War on Terror, Targeting Elected Officials. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. During times of perceived danger, how are populations and their elected representatives vulnerable to manipulation? You have written that a strong social taboo has been constructed that has hampered awareness of this deception and manipulation. What is this taboo? Well, first of all, the the business about how populations are vulnerable at the exact moment of the attack, I'm giving a very informal account of it. I'm not a psychologist and I'm not a neurologist. And I'm not trying to give a sophisticated account, but basically uh, we get we get frightened by threats and we go into a certain part of our mind where we seek reassurance, we seek unity, and the critical mind is not functioning very well. And as I've said, that's that's dangerous. Now, the, the thing is that that usually doesn't last too long. So, for example, um, after 9-11, the, the poll showed that many Americans were willing to suspend their civil liberties, and they were willing to hurl themselves at the enemy. However, 
we know that that doesn't last too long, and the polls showed that. And and there was a lot of sign that resistance in the U.S., both in Congress and in the general population, was starting to grow to the Patriot Act, for example, saying, wait a minute, are we giving away our civil liberties? And it was very broad-based. It wasn't just the left. It was people on the left, people on the right, people all over the place were wondering about this, and also some rumblings of anti-war uh, sentiment. So what happens in that case? Well, what happens is that if the executive branch is determined, as I believe it was, in the fall of 9-11 to get its war and to get its uh, civil liberties restrictions, it will do its best to maintain the sense of fear, maintain the threat, both against Congress and the general population. And I think that's quite clearly what it did in the case of the fall of 9-11. There were all kinds of uh, reports of threats. The FBI was coming up with stuff, oh, we're 100% sure Al-Qaeda is going to attack again. You have reported that members of the U.S. Congress were told by the FBI not to wear their congressional pins publicly or to use their congressional license plates. They were told they must hide their identities as elected representatives. Now, I hadn't heard that before. Yes, uh, this is very clear. It was reported in mainstream media. And so this was what I'm calling one method of keeping Congress intimidated. You can't go out in public and tell people, right, that you are a congressional member. You might be attacked. And there's barricades around, you know, the Capitol and uh, police tape and all kinds of additional restrictions and rerouting of traffic. All this is going on after 9-11. Then to cap it off, the FBI and Department of Homeland Security and all kinds of people start warning that you know, there's going to be more attacks, that there's a very strong likelihood that there'll be more attacks, and they could be attacks on Congress. And oh my gosh, they start saying, we could even get a biological attack or a chemical attack. And guess what? They did, you know, then the anthrax attacks begin. And then we have anthrax attacks on two U.S. senators. And so what I'm saying is I think it's very clear. My own research indicates it's quite clear that 9-11 was, was the big shock that created the threat, the unity, and so on. But you have to maintain that. And so the anthrax attacks were like uh, the second punch, you know, one-two punch. And, and they kept up the momentum. They kept up the fear. They kept up the threat. You know, the senators in the Hart Senate building had to abandon the whole building. It was contaminated with anthrax. And they were they were trying to get the Patriot Act passed by, you know, using various offices in Washington and didn't have access to their own equipment. So under, under extreme sense of threat and danger, they passed that act. And this is what I'm talking about by keeping up the pressure and keeping up the sense of threat and fear, um, which then continually disables people's um, critical mind, puts them in this emotional state which, in which they're vulnerable. Now, the anthrax letters were sent to leaders of Congress, specifically Daschle and Leahy, but then the media also received these letters. Isn't that right? That's correct. Several um, mainstream media... Um, organizations received the letters, and uh, they received theirs first, in fact, and there were some 
infections that resulted from this. There were five people who died, don't forget. A couple of them were postal workers. Actually, if you, if you look at the anthrax deaths, it seems most, if not all of them, were quite random. Um, these extremely dangerous, sophisticated anthrax spores were put in envelopes and sent through the mail. And there's really no way to tell who would die, but it's pretty clear somebody would. So I think it's quite clear that whoever did that wanted to intimidate the general population of the United States, because, you know, people get mail, right? <laughs> and there's no way of knowing whether that mail now is going to be contaminated by anthrax. And then here are these poor people, ordinary folks, you know, postal workers, an old lady living by herself, a Vietnamese American, um, I forget, nurse's aide or something, um, Robert Stevens, uh, photo editor. These people suddenly are, are, are dying. Many other people are ill. And so this is intimidation of the general population. But then when you get two letters specifically used to target members of Senate who are holding up the Patriot Act, you have to go, wait a minute, what's that about? Now, Senator Daschle and Senator Leahy were both looking at not supporting the Patriot Act until they got these anthrax letters. Is that correct? It's partially correct. Um, let's, first of all, not portray them as uh, great resistors. Uh, they were both, as far as I can tell, entirely swindled by the 9-11 attacks, and they both agreed that legislation such as the Patriot Act was necessary, and they had both said they were committed to getting it passed. However, they did want changes in it. Um, remember that Patrick Leahy was the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. It, it was his job to look at any legislation. It was the job of his committee to look at any legislation that might threaten the civil liberties of Americans and to consider it in his committee and to raise objections and propose changes as necessary. And that's what he was trying to do. So what he said publicly is, I'm committed to the legislation and I'm committed to working night and day to get it passed as quickly as possible. But if we don't scrutinize it and go slow, you know, and go carefully, as he put it, the terrorists win. In other words, if they're trying to attack our democracy, they'll be successful if we gut our own democracy. So he was trying to slow Ashcroft down. He was trying to slow Bush and Cheney down. Um, and he did that at a crucial moment. And his colleague, uh, Tom Daschle, who had the very important position of Senate Majority Leader, supported Leahy. So here's the thing. On a little bit before October 5th, Dick Cheney, the vice president, met with a bunch of Republican senators and said, you know, I don't like the fact that this Patriot Act is taking so long to go through Congress. Now, of course, that's absurd because it was actually proceeding much more quickly than most legislation. But he said, it's going too slowly. I want it passed. Let's try to get it through by October 5th. This is October 5th, 2001. So that's Cheney's deadline. Well, guess what? It wasn't passed by October 5th, and the two guys most responsible for holding it up were Daschle and Leahy. This is all clear. It's all said in the Washington Post at the time. All you have to do is read the paper. So then guess what? So this is the October 5th deadline is missed because of two guys. So then 
somewhere between October 6th, the day after that deadline, and October 9th, somewhere within those three days, two anthrax letters are sent to, guess who, Dashiell and Leahy. And when I say anthrax letters, I mean letters that have an explicit written threat hand-printed inside, and they also contain spores of anthrax, highly sophisticated, weaponized anthrax, which could, in theory, kill not only these guys, but a whole bunch of other people. Now, it's not rocket science here. Cheney gives a deadline. Two guys are responsible for that deadline not being met. Both those guys and nobody else in Congress immediately get anthrax letters sent to them. Not rocket science here. Pretty obvious what's going on. The fact is the anthrax attacks were crucial in getting the Patriot Act passed. And um, there was also, during the anthrax attacks, a really serious attempt to not only uh, claim al-Qaeda did it, but to claim that Iraq had backed al-Qaeda, and therefore it was also being used to promote war against Iraq. So these anthrax attacks were by no means trivial. They were really important in keeping up the momentum. You have described our elected representatives as domesticated. How do you mean? Well, domesticated, I I don't remember how I used the term in the first case, but I would say this. Um, Domesticated in two senses. First of all, um, when this kind of threat happens, they're told, it's okay, we will take care of you. You are, so to speak, a domesticated animal being looked after by the executive branch and the associated intelligence agencies, the military-industrial complex. You don't strike out on your own here. We look after you. Domesticated in that sense, but also domesticated mentally in that they accept the limits to their imagination and to their thinking, which are imposed upon them. So, for example, it's not just the U.S. Same thing happened in my country, in Canada. Um, You know, a so-called terrorist event happens, and you see that the most obvious questions are not being asked. At least they're not asked publicly by members of Congress or members of Parliament. They may talk about it over coffee. They may know more than they let on. But at least publicly, even when the two senators who were in the best, best position to hold up the Patriot Act, those two and nobody else in Congress suddenly get anthrax letters when they start holding up the Patriot Act, the most obvious question should have been asked in the media and in Congress. Hey, who's targeting these particular guys? This looks kind of fishy. Why would Al-Qaeda want to go after guys who are holding up the Patriot Act? Why would Iraq want to do that? It doesn't make any sense. Yet, for the most part, they don't ask these obvious questions because it's taboo to to even imply that your intelligence agency or your executive branch might be complicit in these attacks. It's taboo in the United States, it's taboo in Canada, and it appears to be taboo in general in countries in the West. I'm speaking with researcher and author Dr. Graham McQueen. Today's show, The War on Terror, Targeting Elected Officials. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You have spoken about the physical intimidation of elected representatives as a core feature of the war on terror. 
You cite the U.S. Congress in September of 2001 and also two different incidents in Canada in 2013 and 2014. I'd like you to talk about these incidents in Canada and their striking resemblance to what went on in September of 2001 in the United States. Let's start with the incident in Canada in 2013. What happened there? Okay, well, uh, if we want to look at the pattern of what happened here, we have to realize that both uh, the, the federal police, if you want to call them that, in the U.S. and Canada are both playing a game, uh, a game which is clearly intended to keep the war on terror, which is a fraudulent uh, construction, to keep it going. And uh, one of the ways they do this is by encouraging uh, people, usually uh, marginal poverty-stricken people, sometimes with drug addiction, sometimes minor prison records, sometimes mentally retarded, any number of things. They target them and uh, draw them into terrorism plots, uh, encourage them, give them money, weapons, self-esteem, ideas, and then they nab them and say, oh, look, we caught a terrorist and put them away for years and years. So this pattern in the U.S. has been described very well by Trevor Aronson in his book, The Terror Factory, Inside the FBI's Manufactured War on Terror. And I, I really encourage people to get that book, Trevor Aronson. It's a good piece of research because he looked at every court case uh, from 9-11 until I think it was 2013 when he finished his research, every court case where some someone was on trial for terrorism and read them and came to the conclusion that the FBI was in fact uh, setting these people up again and again and again in order to keep this war on terror going. Well, the thing is that my federal police, the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, are into the same thing. Um, Possibly they're copying the FBI. Maybe they think they're doing it on their own. So the case you're asking me about in 2013 is a classic case of this. We have a couple um, living together, uh, John Nuttall and Amanda Corodi, and they are poverty-stricken young people living in Vancouver and British Columbia, recovering heroin addicts, um, trying to get their little lives together and not doing a very good job. And at some point along the way, they seem to self-convert, although this is a bit mysterious, to Islam and decide that they're Muslims. And the guy, John Nuttall, uh, begins talking about the need for jihad and so on. He's a fantasist. Uh, there's no indication he is capable, mentally or physically, of carrying out a real act of terrorism, but he likes thinking about it. So he gets, at least according to the narrative I have, reported to the police by the local mosque, which wants to have nothing to do with them, and the police decide, the RCMP decide to set up this elaborate scam, really, which goes on for a long time and involves over a hundred RCMP officers. So they do what the FBI normally does. They they dress people up as Muslims and they send them to nuttle this guy and, and they encourage him and they 
buy him a suit and they tell him he's a good guy and they start giving him all kinds of ideas because his idea, his terrorism ideals are hilarious. He would never be able to do anything. He wants to fire rockets at Seattle. He wants to, you know, hijack a train which no longer exists. I mean, they're, they're pure fantasy. And and the RCMP knows their fantasy, actually. If you listen to the audio tapes, they know that this guy is just somebody who watched Rambo 3. But they nonetheless, they're determined to entrap this couple. So finally, they say to Nuttle, they, they ball him out to the point where he begins to cry, uh, pretending to be Muslim and saying he has to get serious about his terrorism. So they say, why don't you use a pressure cooker bomb like they did in the Boston Marathon bombing? Don't worry about how to build it. We'll tell you. Don't worry about getting explosives, which he had no access to. We'll get it for you. Pretending all the time to be Muslim friends, of course. And meanwhile, Nuttall is starting to have reservations. He says to them, hey, I'm not a murderer. I, I, I need some spiritual guidance. All this stuff is on tape, by the way, because this trial went on and on. And finally, they not only help him construct these pressure cooker bombs, although they give him insufficient explosive to do any damage, they then say, hey, we'll drive you around town to find you a nice place to put them. And they find a nice place behind the bush, at the the British Columbia Provincial Legislature, okay? And then they arrest them. Well, this comes under the category of intimidation of legislatures. Here is supposedly a bomb which is going to go off right next to the legislature, and also it's going to go off on the national holiday, Canada Day, where there'll be civilians walking around with their kids. And so this... Um, this was a classic entrapment case. FBI does it all the time. Um, RCMP has done it a few times. Uh, it went to trial. Uh, the jury, to my disappointment, found them both guilty of terrorism. Uh, but the judge, a woman named Catherine Bruce, had serious reservations. And uh, she decided she was going to look at this more closely because it looked like an entrapment case. And a few months ago, she came out with her decision and she stayed the proceedings. She said, this is no good. It's not acceptable. Let me quote her words uh, because she wrote a long report which is available on the internet. Quote, the world has enough terrorists. We do not need the police to create more out of marginalized people who have neither the capacity nor sufficient motivation to do it themselves, and so on and so forth. Um, now, the police are, you know, reacting, and they rearrested them, and they're, they're appealing the case, and so on. But I think her decision could become very important in helping to draw a line here. But I hope you see how that 2013 case fits what we're talking about here. Here are two Muslim terrorists with great fanfare. They're caught, their pressure cooker bombs are shown, pictures of them are shown in the news. Oh my gosh, they would have blown up civilians and also part of the BC legislature. This is where representatives of the people come in. So this kind of event can not only intimidate the BC legislature, it can intimidate all legislatures across the country in Canada, including uh, Parliament in Ottawa. Um, everybody will now have to increase their security, make it more difficult for civilians to have access to their elected representatives. So 
But you get the idea. That's what happened in 2013. And the only good news here is that at the moment, it's been an embarrassment for our federal police, and it's not clear they're going to come out of this looking good. Well, I can't help but be struck by the fact that Canada Day, July 1st, 2013, when this incident that you've just been describing took place with these pressure cooker bombs, the so-called Boston bombings took place April 15th of that same year, and the claim is that there were pressure cooker bombs. Now, this is just too big of a coincidence. Well, it is. Uh, it isn't a coincidence, uh, and there are a couple of things worth noting here. First of all, the police agents who were trying to entrap John Nuttall said very clearly, "You are not capable of hijacking a train." Okay, let's get real. Here's what you can do: you can, with our help, build a pressure cooker bomb, just as they did in the Boston Marathon bombing. So, the Canadian Federal Police are building upon this American case, which also, in my view, looks like another, you know, intelligence operation, by the way, the Boston Marathon bomb. So the intelligence agencies are working together. And by the way, we know they do that. We know the FBI and the RCMP work together often in these cases. That's the first thing to note. The other thing to note is that the Boston Marathon bombings didn't just have Uh, a big effect in the U.S., they also had an effect in Canada, and they were used as a pretext to pass legislation in Canada restricting our rights. So again, the the effect of these things across borders is very important to think about. Gee, I didn't know about that legislation in Canada. What is that? Well, as I recall, this is a bit complicated, but I'll try and sum it up. After the 9-11 attacks, uh, a piece of legislation was passed in Canada in December of 2001, and I don't remember the title of it, but something like anti-terrorism legislation, which clamped down on Canadian rights and gave more power to intelligence agencies and so on. The Liberal government at the time had the good sense to put a sunset clause in to say, in other words, this will lapse automatically unless it is deliberately renewed after a certain period of time by Parliament. Well, uh, that deadline came and Parliament didn't renew it, uh, much to the disappointment of the later Conservative Government of Canada, which really wanted that legislation. So, and I believe I'm getting this straight, it's possible I'm getting it wrong, but I think I'm getting it right. Uh, The Conservative government finally got its opportunity a few years later to renew that legislation after the Boston Marathon bombings. That gave them the opportunity. The public was scared. Parliament was scared. And that was the opportunity they seized. Now, after the October 22nd, 2014 terrorism incident, which we haven't talked about yet, another even worse piece of legislation was passed restricting Canadians' civil rights, but that's a different story. Well, Graham, would you like to give us a synopsis of the October 2014 incident? Now, this took place at the Parliament of Canada in Ottawa. What happened there? Right. Well, um, October 22nd, 2014, perhaps I should say That week in Canada was quite remarkable historically because there were two, quote, 
unquote, terrorism events that happened in rapid succession. On what I believe was a Monday, October 20th, um, an apparently Muslim guy with the big beard and the outfit and so on got in his car and ran down two Canadian soldiers. One was injured and one died. Okay, that was on October 20th. Two days later, October 22nd, another terrorism incident happens where another apparent Muslim by the name of Michael Zihaf Bibo. Um, you can put all that in quotes because our knowledge of the event is almost entirely from the federal police, whom we obviously can't trust. But for the moment, let's assume it's true. Michael Zihaf Bibo, Muslim, um, first of all, gets out of his car with a rifle and shoots at two Canadian soldiers who are on duty, uh, ceremonial duty, with um, empty rifles at the National War Memorial in Ottawa, which is just a short walk from Parliament. He takes out his rifle, he shoots one of the men, uh, Corporal Cirillo, who then dies. Uh, he tries to shoot a second guy, but the guy evades the shots, manages to get away unharmed. Then he runs, he gets in his car with his rifle, he drives as far as he can toward Parliament, and then there's bollards there where he can't drive any farther, so he gets out of the car and he runs under the grounds of Parliament with this rifle and a little bandana over his face and his long hair and beard flowing. He, he hijacks a ministerial car, which is not far from Parliament, um, in other words, he tells the driver to get out or he'll shoot him. He gets in the car with his rifle. He drives, <laughs> it's hard to say all this without laughing. Um, he drives that car right past two federal police cars, two RCMP cars, which are stationed there, neither of which does anything to impede him. They then uh, follow him in their cars as he drives directly to the entrance to the main parliament building called Center Block, where the Canadian Parliament meets. He then gets out of that car, runs into the building with a loaded rifle, and runs down the central hall called the Hall of Honour. Now, on, on one side of it is the Prime Minister of Canada with his Conservative caucus around him. They formed the government at the time. This is behind an unlocked door. On the other side of the Hall of Honor is the official opposition, the NDP, having their meeting, also unlocked door. So this is considered, for obvious reasons, the greatest security breach in the history of Parliament. Here's this guy with a loaded rifle running down the hall. He could have, in theory, killed a bunch of parliamentarians. Well, um, the fact that he even got that far is astonishing managed to get in the front door, managed to get past the guards. Eventually, they pull out their pistols, the guards, and begin firing at him, and within two minutes, he's dead. And there's a whole other story that I could talk about there. Uh, perhaps if, if we have time to go threat, unity, and response, we can go through those stages. But that's, that's the summary of the incident. He does not, in fact, uh, kill anybody. He does not uh, shoot anybody. Um, in Parliament. There's one guard that's slightly wounded by a ricochet, but he doesn't shoot anybody. He himself is brought down quite quickly. That, in a nutshell, is the incident. I'm speaking with researcher and author Dr. Graham McQueen. 
today's show, The War on Terror, Targeting Elected Officials. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And what was the reaction uh, by the authorities to this incident? Well, of course, uh, just as the U.S. Congress was thoroughly intimidated on 9-11 and fled in all directions, here we have um, members of parliament stuck behind closed doors, which aren't locked, uh, hearing a huge amount of gunfire happening right outside the doors. I mean, as far as we can tell, 59 shots are fired very rapidly. They don't know who's there. It could be a team of guys with assault rifles. So they're scared, naturally. They're thoroughly intimidated. And that's in my little threefold uh, pattern here, threat, unity, response. That's threat. And they were certainly scared. Uh, They did not hesitate to say so. They were also then grateful to the security services who saved them. And in the end, um, the terrorist in quotes, Zihaf Bibo, was killed by two guys, one of whom was uh, the head of security, head of security for parliament, for that building, a man by the name of Kevin Vickers. Now, Vickers happened to be not only the head of security, but also a symbolic figure who, in, in a fancy uniform, he carries the mace into parliament. And if he doesn't do that, parliament can't meet. So he's a crucial guy and he's familiar. So then we have this brilliant uh piece of video footage from the day after this event in which he brings the mace into parliament. We're talking about a symbolic object that he carries, which looks like a huge cudgel. It comes from British parliamentary traditions, a very old tradition. So he carries this big kind of gold-plated thing, uh, and he's all dressed up in robes, and that's what he carries into Parliament. Well, just imagine how grateful members of Parliament are. This is the guy who saved them. This is the guy who killed the terrorist. So they all rise to their feet and begin to clap. It doesn't matter what party you're in, NDP, conservative, green, whatever, you clap. And that's another powerful symbol of unity. It's like Congress singing God Bless America. It's it's a very similar image. So again, we have we have unity. And then we have just as Dashiell and, and Bush hugged, we have famous hugs, which I managed to find photos of, of the Prime Minister of Canada, Mr. Harper, a very unhuggy man, by the way. He looks so awkward hugging them, but now he does it. He hugs the official leader of the opposition. He hugs Mr. Trudeau, the head of the Liberal Party, who's now the Prime Minister. And we have Mr. Harper, the Prime Minister, giving a little speech about unity and we will not be intimidated and so on. And from that unity, we move over to response. And guess what? Both elements are there again. Domestically, a new bill is introduced, C-51, which infringes on traditional Canadian civil rights and gives more power to intelligence agencies in Canada. And externally, guess what? Uh, There's legitimation of a very recent uh, Canadian military presence in Iraq. Um, And they immediately name one of their uh, army bases in Iraq after the soldier killed on October 22nd. And very clear sign that this legitimizes our military mission. So, Again, we have threat, unity, and response, and in some ways very similar to the pattern set down in the U.S. 
Now, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, who were implicated in the 2013 event, having entrapped these people, they were also in charge at Parliament in Ottawa during the 2014 event. That's right. They had responsibility for the security of the area of what is called Parliament Hill, not inside the building, but the hill itself. But in fact, what we discovered is that they were way short of personnel. They had, in fact, terminated some patrols that they'd been taking just a couple of days before this event. And it's peculiar because the head of the RCMP said, oh, we were completely caught off guard by this event. Uh, But that's false. I mean, he just lied. Um, There were at least six warnings. And these warnings were quite specific. And, you know, they're all documented. Uh, And when I say they're specific, I mean, for example, um, a man who works for the British Columbia legislature said quite promptly, oh, we got a warning that something might happen this week, meaning a terrorist event. Well, guess what? Something did happen this week. Two terrorist events happened that week. That's pretty specific. Um, So as one journalist said, who had a little bit of brains here, he said, if the BC legislature was prepared, why wasn't the national legislature? Why wasn't parliament prepared? Why wasn't the RCMP prepared? And there are many, many serious questions about how this was handled. And I think uh, if the RCMP were forced into a corner, they would say, oh, well, you know, we didn't have enough funding. And so we didn't respond as, as quickly as we should have. But of course, there is a much darker option here. And that is that they may have been complicit in this event, just as they set up this impoverished bearded young drug addict in Vancouver the previous year, they may also have entrapped another bearded, uh, impoverished drug addict from Vancouver, namely Ziaf Bibo, a year later. Um, And that's what I'm worried about. I'm worried about direct complicity by the RCMP and possibly the FBI in in entrapping this guy to do the event. And that's the taboo possibility. That's the one you're not allowed to mention in public. That's the one that journalists don't talk about, parliamentarians don't talk about. It's okay to say the RCMP may have been incompetent. You know, it's okay to say that Zihaf Bibo may not have been a terrorist. He might have just been mentally ill. You know, that's the kind of liberal position. But it's not okay to say our federal police may have been complicit in this, just as they were complicit the year before in entrapping somebody. And isn't it also true that the RCMP reported that these uh, so-called terrorists in Canadian Parliament in Ottawa had fired 30 shots, and it turned out he only fired two? (laughs) Well, yeah, that's slightly oversimplified, but you're pretty much on target. In other words, uh, there was an attempt to uh, exaggerate, an attempt, I wouldn't say so much on the part of the RCMP as by some Canadian uh, members of the government um, who tried to exaggerate the degree of threat that this man represented, that he could have killed all these people. It was as if he'd had a sophisticated assault rifle, uh, which was you know, recently loaded. This was not true at all. He, 
he carried a model 94 winchester winchester 3030 a deer deer rifle and uh it was designed in 1894 that's his rifle it appears to have had two bullets in it three at maximum when he ran into the parliament and um of the 59 bullets that parliamentarians heard, the 59 shots, 56 were fired by the police with 9mm pistols, and the man was hit uh, 31 times. He was finally killed uh, at point-blank range between 3 and, say, 10 feet by two guys who fired repeatedly into him, including once he had fallen to the ground, um, meaning there will be no trial. He's dead, and there has been no call for a public inquiry either. So at the moment, we are completely trapped within the police narrative of what happened. Do you consider the war on terror in general to be a threat to democracy? Oh, certainly. Uh, it's a threat to democracy in all sorts of ways. But what I've been trying to stress recently in a couple of talks is this threat to representative democracy specifically. Um, so where the executive and the associated intelligence agencies physically intimidates parliament or Congress, the elected representatives of the people, and gets them to pass various laws which they otherwise wouldn't do. And it's sometimes hard to get people worked up about this because people are often quite cynical already about their parliaments and their and their Congress. Uh, you know, when I talk to most Americans that I know, they kind of go ho-hum when you say Congress was intimidated because they say Congress doesn't represent us anyway. Um, well, if that's the case, that's a problem. But I still think if our representative democracies are being disassembled in front of our eyes, um, we ought to take note of that. And it may be one of these cases where you don't know what you've got till it's gone. After all, um, Congress was not exactly um, on fire with the spirit of resistance during the Vietnam War, but they did, in the end, deny the executive the funds necessary to continue that war. And that's why that war ended. And we're not seeing anything even at that kind of low level of feistiness at the moment. So I would say, uh, defective though it may be, the representative democracy we have is better than a straight authoritarian state, which is where I'm afraid we're headed. With regard to the war on terror, do you see it as the executive branch, obviously, intimidating not only the legislative branch of government, but also the judicial? I think that's true. Uh, and I think there's also danger, I realize, of uh, oversimplification. You know, what do I mean by the executive branch? I mean, for example, in the case of the Kennedy assassination, it was the head of the executive branch, the president, who was who was killed. Um, there's no there's no automatic immunity for presidents and vice presidents and so on, but I think what we're seeing in the war on terror specifically, uh, on these frauds rather than the frauds of the '60s, is that in general the executive branch. Um, and by the way, executive branch doesn't just mean the president. Okay, in the United States, it includes the intelligence agencies. Um, it is usually uh, used that term in a way to include the FBI and the CIA and a variety of others as well, the NSA, um, the DIA. And so 
these are all considered part of the executive branch, as is the Pentagon. So that's what I'm talking about. That's a hugely powerful set of agencies. And here's poor Congress, the lawmakers elected by the people, up against that mammoth set of institutions and being repeatedly intimidated in all kinds of ways. That's the particular threat. That's the particular danger that I'm highlighting at the moment. And I think that's, that's what we're seeing in the war on terror. Graham McQueen, thank you very much. Well, you're welcome, Bonnie. It's always a delight to be on your show. I've been speaking with Dr. Graham McQueen. Today's show has been The War on Terror, Targeting Elected Officials. Since taking early retirement from McMaster University, most of Dr. McQueen's research has focused on the events of September 11th and the War on Terror. He is a co-editor of the Journal of 9-11 Studies, a member of the 9-11 Consensus Panel, and was on the organizing committee of the 2011 Toronto hearings on 9-11. He currently serves on the board of directors of the International Center for 9-11 Studies, which has secured the release of numerous photographs and videos held by the U.S. government. Recently, he has completed a report entitled The October 22, 2014 Ottawa Shootings, why Canadians Need a Public Inquiry. He is the author of the 2001 Anthrax Deception, The Case for a Domestic Conspiracy, available at claritypress.com. That's claritypress.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yara Mako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter, which includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now, the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what inside yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me?